0: to this week's LaFeva CFC podcast. Connect with us via our website LaFevaCFC.com or our Facebook page www.facebook.com slash We hope you enjoy this week's message. Okay, hope everyone is doing okay. Hope everyone is going to be alright after the sermon because uh, Jesus is not mincing his words in this passage and he's got some pretty hard words to say. And uh, it's one of the benefits of just going through a portion of Scripture is that you don't get to skip some of the tough parts. And he's got some tough words to say. Uh, We'll look at Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20, to start off with. Uh, Here are the words of Jesus Christ. "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. "'I have come not to abolish but to fulfill.' exceeds that of the scribes and the pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven let's pray heavenly father your son has some strong and direct words for us in this passage and i pray that that they would pierce the heart replenish the soul and help us to trust christ as our king and see the goodness of the kingdom that he is building in our midst in your name, amen. Uh, one of the main criticisms of Jesus during his time on earth uh, was that he didn't take the Jewish law, the law of Moses, the law of God, very seriously. That was a criticism, and, and Paul coped that as well, if you read through Romans. But it's not that Jesus didn't take the law seriously, it's just that he saw the law in a very different way to his Jewish contemporaries. So Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount with a series of blessings, Blessed are the poor. And I'm sure his critics were listening, and they were expecting a blessing that went something like this Blessed are the law keepers, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. And so they they waited and they, they waited some more, And they waited a little bit more and then their blessing never actually came. The scribes and the Pharisees expected that their obedience would be rewarded by the blessings of God. However, there's a problem here, which is that you you don't obey to receive the blessing of God, you obey because you have already received the blessing of God. So if you step back and examine the the wider story of how God interacts with his people, the common thread is this, that God saves, God instructs. God saves, God instructs. God saves his people, and then God instructs his people. So when God created Adam, God gave him a law to obey. Now in that example, that was before sin entered the world, but God created, and God instructed After the fall where sin entered the world through Adam, God saved Noah and his family from the flood and then he gave Noah a similar law to obey, similar to the one he gave Adam. When God graciously called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to himself, it's very clear that this is a God that tells us what to do. Uh, He's never been a God who sits back from his people. He's a God who comes to his people and instructs them. So when we come to the New Testament and Jesus is telling us how to live, the apostles are directing our lives. Well, this should come as no surprise to us. This is part of what it means to be saved. This is how it's always been with God and the people that he is forming. God saves, God instructs. Uh, the, the biggest saving moment the the most important moment of grace in the Old Testament is the story of the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. Israel looked back at this moment in the same way that we look back at the cross today. This is the moment that God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. And in, in this context of God's amazing saving grace, what does he do next? He sits them down and gives them the Ten Commandments. And from those 10 commandments, other laws are created within the context of the nation of Israel. God has always told his people what to do, how to live their lives. He's not a God who sits back. He's a God who comes to us and instructs. But here's the thing we we need to remember as followers of Christ, that God instructs his people within the context of grace. Grace. And so, when you come to this portion of Jesus' sermon that we're about to read, and Jesus is preaching the law and he's preaching it hard, you don't want to forget the wider context. Jesus began his sermon with a series of blessings. Jesus is instructing his people within the context of grace. The blessing of Christ comes before the law of Christ. And whether you've received that blessing, whether you've received that salvation, will ultimately determine how you hear his sermon. So here's the law as Jesus sees it. Matthew five twenty-one to 48. I'm just going to read through it all and feel the full weight of his words. So verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. I do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, There was a reformer, which I'm sure some of you have heard of, John Calvin, and uh, he lived from 1509 to 1564 and he was one of the significant reformers that came after Martin Luther who helped to kickstart the Protestant Reformation and uh, Calvin, Calvin helped to form and made popular the idea that God intends his law to function in three ways and uh, this three-fold use of the law will actually help us to understand the passage today. The first use of the law is to be a mirror. So when you look in the mirror every day before you head out, the main purpose of doing so is to check if your standards have been met. So like uh, sometimes I'm on my way out and the hair might be sticking out in the back of my head and I go, all right, well that's not the JK standard. Let's uh, <laughs> slap some wax on the back of there and <laughs> pin that down. Um, I've got a standard idea of what Joel Ken looks like. and the mirror helps me to check if I've met my standards and that can be a bit tricky because I'm just like well this doesn't look like me and then I hear this other voice saying well you've gained a lot of weight and and then that's where I go do I put down the donut or do I change my standard and uh, I usually change the standard so that's the mirror that's the mirror that's how we use it we look into the mirror and we check our standard Um, the law of God is like a mirror It's to be a mirror. But what it reflects back to us is the standard of God's perfect and holy law and our sinful inability to live up to those standards. And I'm sure, as you've been listening to the words of Jesus Christ, you pretty much felt that despair um, as he preached the law. One of the main issues in life is that uh, our moral standards are way too low. And so when we look in the mirror, we, we judge ourselves by our own standards and think, yeah, I'm pretty good. If, if there's a heaven, I'm, I'm sure I'll, pretty sure I'll make it up there. I'm, I'm a good bloke. It's a very Aussie thing to say. Yeah, he's a pretty good bloke. I'm sure he'll be all right. Or sometimes we compare ourselves to other people, so we put um, you know, some of their standards. I'm not as bad as that guy. Um, I haven't killed anyone. If, if there's a heaven, he won't make it, but pretty sure I'll make it. I'm a pretty good bloke. Um, As we've just heard the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, preaching the law, being a pretty good bloke is not good enough. Sure, maybe you've never murdered someone, but have you been angry with someone? Have you ever insulted another person? Have you ever failed to reconcile with someone that you know has something against you? Jesus says, you deserve hell, you won't make it to heaven. Sure, maybe you've never committed adultery, but have you ever looked at someone with lust in your heart? Jesus says, you deserve hell, you won't make it to heaven. If you've ever lied, if you've ever failed to perfectly love your neighbor and love your enemy, Jesus says, you deserve hell, you won't make it to heaven. Our standards are not his standards. So Martin Luther and John Calvin both taught that the first use of the law was to be this mirror that it would drive people to the gospel, that we would become aware of our sin as we are met with his holiness, that we would be aware of our total inability to keep his law, that we would know that there are only two options from now on, that we would either be damned in hell or that God would show his pardon, and that ultimately and finally, the gospel offers the pardon that we so desperately need when we look into that mirror. So what is the gospel? It's the, it's the good news that while we look in the mirror of God's law and are found guilty of not meeting its standards, Jesus Christ has looked in the mirror of God's law and was found to be righteous. And when a sinner puts their faith in Christ, scripture says we become united to Christ and his righteousness becomes ours, and our death sentence becomes his. That in this gracious turn of events, when we look in the mirror of God's law, we are somehow found righteous in Christ, but when Christ looked in, that, in the mirror of God's law, although he was perfect and without sin, there was a moment on our behalf when he was found to be guilty, that his death on the cross satisfied the justice of God on our behalf, that we would be shown mercy and spared from hell. So today you may have heard the words of Christ in Matthew 5 and felt despair. Well, that was the point. You can't earn your way to the kingdom of heaven. Being a good enough bloke, being a good person in the eyes of the world isn't good enough for the eyes of God. Paul says in Romans 3 that no one is good, not even one. And the sooner you learn this truth, the easier it is to cling to Jesus as the one who was good enough on your behalf. So if today you you heard the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 and felt despair, the answer to your despair is to cling to Christ and be found perfect and righteous in him and him alone. That's the first use of the law as a mirror. The second use of the law is only possible once someone has been driven in despair to the gospel. We'll get to it in a moment, but let's use the section on adultery and lust as our way to get there. So in this section on adultery, there's a pretty big clue that Jesus is, he's using a lot of exaggeration, a lot of hyperbole. He's exaggerating obedience to the law as a way of grabbing our attention and using strong, literal language to make a deeply spiritual point. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to lust, cut it out because it's better to lose one of your members than to walk into hell with your whole body. Now that is intense language, right? I'm sure i would probably get thrown away in prison if you talk like that. Um, and Jesus is not meaning for it to be taken literally because I'm sure he knows that if you cut out your right eye, The problem is you can just as easily lust with your left eye. Um, If you cut off your right hand, all of a sudden you've got this left hand, I can steal things with the left hand. Um, The problem is you've still got a left hand. The problem is you've still got a left eye. So Jesus is speaking in symbols and he's leading the listener to the spiritual and symbolic issue, which is your heart. The fact of the matter is you need to cut out your heart. God has prophesied the solution to this heart problem, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, a new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Hebrews eight, 8 ten uh, quotes Jeremiah 31 33: I will put my laws in their minds, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. One of the benefits of salvation is that God changes your heart. Not only has He changed your heart, He's put the law on your mind and the Holy Spirit within you. This leads us to the second use of the law. The second use of the law is to guide the Christian into the good works that God has planned for them. Because if the law is on your mind, if the Spirit is now within you, if you have a new heart, then you can step into the good works that God has planned for you. You've been given the power of the gospel to obey the law of God and you've been given the grace of the gospel in those moments where you fall short of God's law. You have been set free to obey the law of God knowing that Christ has already suffered the penalty for your disobedience. So what this means in practice is that as you obey the law of God by the power of the gospel, and as you fail in some areas of the law, the grace of the gospel picks you up. The blood of Christ has cleansed your guilty conscience, and you can try again and try again and try again. The first use of the law is to guide sinners towards the saving gospel of Christ. The second use of the law is to guide Christians toward holiness and sanctification. And the third use of the law is to restrain evil in society. So if God is good and his law is good, then there's a sense in which it's not only good and beneficial for the Christian, but it's actually good for the world as a whole. It's good for all people. And so to be God's kingdom today is to display the law of God to a watching world and to reveal the law of God as good for society. So in our democratic nation, we have a rare opportunity in history, uh, hasn't come, come across that often, to have the law of God determine how we vote in local and national government elections. If the third use of the law is to restrain evil in society, then we should use that opportunity wherever we can, including the voting booth. Uh, However, there's a much better way than politics. The best way to restrain evil in society is not simply to vote in accordance with the law of God. That will only get us so far and there's no guarantee that the way you vote will be the majority anyway. The best way to restrain evil in society is for the church to practice the law of God among ourselves. One of the benefits of the God we worship is that He's a good God. Christ is a good King, and He's building a good kingdom, a functioning society that is birthed in the grace of the gospel and sustained by the grace of God's good law. Well, let's show it off. Let's show off this society to the world. Thinking back to last week's message, this is what it means for Christians to be salt and light. Remember that salt was a preservative. The third use of the law is to restrain evil in society, which is another way of saying preserve society, to be like salt. Think about the type of society that Christ is describing in Matthew 5. He's describing a society where people don't hurt each other, each other by their words and their actions. A society where if people do hurt each other, they take the initiative to reconcile with the person who's hurt them or who has been hurt by them. A society where marriages are long lasting and families are stable. A society where people tell the truth. A society where people don't seek revenge on one another. A society where people give generously of their time and possessions a society where people love their neighbors and their enemies. So in Matthew 21 to 48, 27 verses, this is the type of society that Jesus is describing and all of these teachings are good for our nation whether or not you're a Christian. Reconciliation is good for society. Long-lasting marriages and stable families are good for this nation. Telling the truth is good for this nation. If our society has walked away from God and his law, it's up to the church to display what this type of society, this kingdom of God, looks like to the world. If the institution of marriage and families are falling apart in the world, let them remain stable in our churches. If the world is telling lies, let the church be a place where we tell the truth. If the world is becoming more and more stingy with their time and possessions, let the church be a place of generosity. Let us endeavor to live out these laws in our church, being the kingdom of God in our world, trusting that God is a good God and that Christ is building a good kingdom. So as we finish, let me just summarize the threefold use of the law. First, the law drives sinners in despair to the saving gospel of Christ. Second, the law guides Christians towards holiness and sanctification. And third, the law restrains evil in society as Christians practice the law of God amongst ourselves, displaying to the world what life in the kingdom looks like and inviting the world into that kingdom, into that society that God is building with the foundation of the gospel at its core.